A warning, this episode contains details about a body and post-mortem that some people may find distressing. Previously on The Storyteller, Violent Delights. A prominent Scottish farmer goes missing, and despite initial thoughts he'd gone on a plane trip with a fellow amateur pilot, suspicions grew when he failed to return home to his beautiful wife and three children. Well, there was a lot of gossip, of course. He had been done away with. Three months later, Sheila Garvey's own mother went to police, prompting her arrest in front of her three young children. She has a memory of two policemen turning up at the farmhouse. The next thing, her mother being taken away. I'm Isla Traquere and this is the storyteller, Violent Delights. A true story of love which began as a fairy tale, but ended in a nightmare. From castles to a courtroom, this story rocked Scotland like no other. It's a crime so historic, only a few characters are alive to tell the tale. And I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines and who killed Maxwell Garvey and why. August 16th, 1968. Police surround a bar in Aberdeen. Their target, a 22-year-old man named Brian Tevendale. The tall, handsome but scruffy barman has no idea who's about to walk through the door. Retired police officer Bill Berry was part of the arresting team that evening. He's now 84 and I had to record our interview over a very crackly phone line, so apologies for the drop in quality. We were told meet in the master room, we're told we're going to the pub in King Street to lift Stevendale. There's two doors to the pub, I was at one and Bill was at the other. Nobody's allowed in, nobody's allowed out. Of course, as soon as the police come in, the pints are all the way down the counter, everybody's told to be quiet, you know, basically that was it. That was quite a silence actually in the pub. <laughs> I had no idea, he was caught unaware, very little reaction at all. He's got to put his hands up and basically that is it. The young man was taken for questioning in Aberdeen's police headquarters. Nearby in a stark interview room on a wooden chair, an exhausted Sheila Garvey was toying with a cup and saucer and uneaten biscuit. She'd been questioned by multiple detectives by this point. Her response always the same. No, she didn't know where her husband was. No, she did not kill him. Meanwhile, her mother, Edith Watson, was looking after the three children, who'd witnessed the abrupt departure of their mother earlier in the day. Retired officer Ian Gordon recalls learning of the moment a distraught Mrs Watson shopped her own daughter to the police. The sergeant at Lawrence Kirk at the time, um, who had built up a very good relationship with uh, Mrs Garvey, it was a, a Sergeant Bob Grant, who was there at the time, and funny enough, um, Bob was my sergeant when I was at Lawrence Kirk, because it was only a three-man station at that time. But Bob had built up a good relationship, and uh, it was really um, Mrs. Watson had spoken to Bob originally uh, about her suspicions, and it was from there when he passed it on to CID that um, Sheila and Brian Tevendale initially were taken in custody. While the pair were being questioned, Detective Inspector Alistair Smith was asked to return to West Cairnbeg 
and instead of looking for Max Garvey alive, he was to look for clues to prove he was dead. The Chief Constable of Scottish North Eastern Counties, Tom Chasser, it was at the time, he requested that we, through uh, his Detective Inspector, James Murray, uh, make a thorough scientific examination of the property because it was suspected that his body was not in the, in the home but that there may be evidence within the home which indicated uh, that he might have been uh, assaulted or, or attacked, murdered. And we then did a thorough examination starting in the uh, Maxwell Garvey's office, which is downstairs in the property, uh, entry from round the side in the back, I suppose one would call it. And uh, we did an, an examination of the whole house, ending up, as it uh, turned out, in uh, a large bedroom on the first floor. Uh, and uh, it seemed to me that there was a difference between the layout uh, from my previous visit to this visit. And uh, that caused us to center our examination in this large bedroom, which we gathered had been the bedroom of Maxwell and his wife. Edith Watson had informed Sergeant Grant that her daughter had rearranged the furniture following Max's disappearance. When the police put it back in its original position, the forensic team could see what Sheila had been trying to hide. The first thing that caught my attention was that there was abrasions on the surface of the wallpaper behind the bed and the left-hand side. And uh, on closer examination, I was, I suppose, convinced in my mind that the stains, the dark red stains, were blood. I did a uh, presumptive test, which proved positive. So uh, on a closer examination, it was quite clear not, that not only were there several small spots which might have been blood on the wallpaper uh, at the left-hand side of the, the bed uh, headboard, and also it turned out when I used oblique strong lighting, I could see that there was tiny flecks, which proved to be blood, uh, scattered in a semicircle, I suppose one would call it, uh, on the headboard, which suggested to me that there had been something in the middle of this group of bloodstains which had blocked uh, the passage of the blood from its origins, probably in the bed. And did you think at that time that that, that semicircle could be the shape of a body, perhaps? Well, not of a body, but, but probably of the head. If one can imagine a head on a pillow uh, and then blood spattered from that head, it would have formed a semicircular pattern of scattered uh, drops on the headboard. So what did you gather from this, the fact that the furniture was in a different uh, position, etc., where the blood stains were, what could you deduce from that? The scattered bloods suggested that uh, the origin of the blood had been as a result of a blow of some sort, because uh, blood spatters, as you're probably aware, as a result of a blow, and it's, it can be in large drops or it can be in a fine froth or, or tiny drops. 
it's tiny drops in this particular case. And my view was that uh, something had happened to, uh, I, I wasn't sure that it was a body at that particular time because I couldn't tell whether it was human blood or not at that time. There could have been other origins of it, so I kept an open mind until we did tests on blood later on. Was it your opinion that there'd obviously been an attempt to cover this up, to clean it up? Well, you know, the curious thing is this. I would have suspected that that should have been the case, but as far as I could see, there was nothing on the headboard which suggested that any attempt had been made to even clean it. And this probably was because it wasn't immediately obvious that there was contamination of the headboard. It was only when I put on strong uh, directional lighting that they became obvious. So I think no one was aware that there was spattering there. However, as far as the wallpaper was concerned, there was it would have been clear to anyone there that this was a scattering of a dark red substance, probably blood. And some attempt had been made there to wipe the, the wallpaper. It wasn't immediately obvious, uh, and probably most people would not have been aware of it, but my job was to look for suspect material, and that's why I saw it right away when I moved in close to the bed's head and saw these marks. The blood spots and smears indicated an act of violence may have taken place, but without a body, it would be hard to prove, and time was running out. So I'm Stuart Cree, uh, and I was a police officer in the Scottish North East Counties Constabulary and later in Grampian Police. This was seemed to be the stumbling block throughout the inquiry, wasn't it? You, you know, where's the body? That... That was the big drawback, and and when the when the officers who interviewed uh, those involved and uh, that they knew that once they got to that stage, once they were able to to find out where the body was, that they would make significant progress, uh, and that so the importance of doing that was was uh, paramount. In the early hours of the morning. Frustrated detectives finally got the break they needed. Brian Tevendale told them, get a car, I'll take you to the body at Lauriston. One of the accused uh, uh, eventually blurted out, uh, I'll, sh I'll show you where the body is, or words to that effect, you know, I'll take you to see it, or something like that. And things moved quite quickly thereafter. And that was the, 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 the key which unlocked the rest of the, the sad tale. Lauriston Castle stands on a clifftop, just over a mile inland from the North Sea coast, near St Cyrus. Once a royal fortress, it's claimed to be one of the oldest privately owned and inhabited castles in the area. So private, most people don't even know it exists. But on Saturday, August the 17th, 1968, the peace and tranquility of this remote estate was hijacked by police vehicles and forensic officers. They were looking for the body of missing Maxwell Garvey, the prominent flying farmer who'd vanished almost exactly three months earlier. So I have driven up over the crest of a hill and now I can see the ocean. Right, now I'm turning down a road to Lauriston Castle. So this is a bit of a different experience to my 
pretty much my entire career as a journalist. Due to the coronavirus, I cannot do my normal knocking on doors and indeed face-to-face -face interviews. I've had to build relationships over the phone with quite a few octogenarians who've all been wonderful and had the most incredible memories actually. But it has been useful to actually get out into the car legitimately. Now, <laughs> despite being a Northeast girl, I would never have known how to get here. Never have known this existed. It's private property, private castle. There is absolutely no indication, apart from my uh, trusty sat nav, <laughs> that this is where the castle is. Apart from the telltale boundary wall, which uh, many of these castles and stately homes had in those days. I'm going down a road that says Garden Cottage. But I suspect I might end up getting stuck. So I'm now on the edge of a field and it's not the castle I'm specifically looking for. It's actually an underground tunnel on the land. But all I can see is green and trees. However, I have spoken to the current owners of the castle, a lovely couple, and they've informed me that this tunnel has been lost to the land. So now I can truly see why detectives say there's absolutely no way they would have ever found this location unless Brian Tevendale had led them here. What was the perfect hiding spot for a little boy became the perfect hiding place for a body. Brian Tevendale played in this tunnel as a boy. He had prior knowledge of this and that's why it was there because his uh, parents owned the hotel at St Cyrus. The tunnel was just really in, in the sort of um, wasteland. Uh, it was. It wasn't. It, it came from the, the castle, but it came through um, just some fields and, and waste ground, you know. And uh, it was a very well constructed um, tunnel. Detective Inspector Alistair Smith was given the grim task of being the first into the tunnel, a drainage culvert to the west of the castle. A quick warning that what he discovered is not pleasant, and he describes it not for the purpose of being gory. It was the reality of his job, and he and his team faced numerous challenges as a result. So we were led, I'm talking about uh, Detective Sergeant Cunningham and myself, were led to the entry point, which uh, had not been excavated, of course. It was uh, an entry point which had been known probably to such as Stephendale because he grew up as a boy there and this was a place where I think they played uh, youthful pranks and all sorts of things in that vicinity. Uh, it was not immediately obvious where the entry point was because there was a rusty bedstead, if I remember rightly, lying there and uh, it was partially covered by vegetation uh, and some grass, I think. That's my memory of it. But that was removed and we could see the entry point. It was, it, uh, was about, what, three foot square? Maybe something like that. Just enough for you to drop into it. And uh, <coughs> you would have hit the bottom about four foot, four foot six. Uh, went along the tunnel for about, what, maybe 20 yards or so. There was a strong smell, unpleasant smell. Uh, in my experience, because I dealt with it many times before, it could have been a human body. Uh, 
I could see in front of me a pile of uh, boulders, I guess I would call them that because they're fairly large. And uh, it appeared to me that there was something wrapped in white sheets, or it had been white sheets. And uh, I didn't do any further examination there because it would have been very difficult to do and preserve any evidence that there was there. <laughs> One thing which was rather amusing on the top of the boulder that was next to the head of the body, there was a frog, <laughs> a living frog, which jumped off. I was the first sucker to go down into that tunnel and uh, examine. The reason why was because there might have been evidence there that we didn't want disturbed by anyone else. So I did a thorough examination in the vicinity of the body without moving anything critically. So did you then have to retreat out of the tunnel? We needed to go into the tunnel from another point and uh, having decided that there was nothing that I could get in, in the tunnel itself, I jumped out. It was known the path which the tunnel took. It was measured out, and this is quite interesting, it was measured out and we decided to uh, dig down in there subsequently and uh, we hit it spot on actually. The, the turfs were removed, there was then uh, slabs and uh, there are photographs of this by the way Eileen, you may want to have a look at them sometime, uh, showing what, I think it was a, it looked like a slate slab that was across this particular point in the tunnel and there below us was the body. So I've now got hold of these photographs that were taken by the police at the time. They're really interesting. I will post some of these online so that you can see what I'm talking about. But just to give you an idea, the one of the general area, there's almost a forest in the background, long grass, bushes. You really would have no idea that a tunnel was in this area. And then there's a photograph of a old bicycle frame, it looks like, with branches, etc. And this is what was covering the opening um, to the tunnel. The opening, I, it's just, it really surprised me. So it's this really well-constructed, dry, stacked stone, um, and it's just a sheer drop, a square opening, and then a sheer drop. Um, and then the photograph inside the tunnel looking along, the only way I can describe it is it looks like a mine shaft. Again, it's the, the stone uh, dry stacking, um, and then the roof is very large slabs that stretch right across the width of it. Ian Gordon and his colleague, they went back a couple of days after the body was found and they took these photographs inside and he told me it was quite terrifying. And I can see why he had such difficulty manoeuvring around in this small space. You had to crawl on your hands and knees and uh, I'm actually six foot two. And uh, it was fairly frightening. All I can say is, that I couldn't turn in it. When I came out, I had to come out backwards. I doubt if we'd recovered the body. I don't think the body would have been recovered um, unless anything further come to light. Um, if in fact uh, suspicion fell on Brian Tevendale and uh, he hadn't said where the body was recovered and denied everything, um, there may have been a possibility we would have looked back on um, his life and where he spent some of his life and it might. But as for that tunnel, no, I don't think in all honesty 
that we would have uh, recovered that body. So the next lot of photographs I'm looking at, this is showing the excavation from the top that Alistair Smith talked about. There's a police officer in the hole and they've dug down, it looks about two to three feet of grass and earth and then the slabs have obviously been removed. So this is uh, a very challenging spot to try and remove a body from. Poor Detective Constable Louis Soder, as he was then, uh, he was given the job of going down and organising the removal of the, the stones, first of all, and then wrapping the body as best he could in another sheet so that it could be lifted out. So that it was lifted out in another sheet, intact as it was. He, I think he was quite sick, my, my recollection is. I, I don't know that we were necessarily very sympathetic because these are things we dealt with fairly often at that particular time. Not such a, a, a murder, but a recovery of bodies from places like tunnels, graves or what, what have you. Uh, and quite often the first police officer in the scene got sick and I can understand that because it was a horrible smell. I just happened to be used to it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever walked in the country and found a dead rabbit or a hare or uh, a deer. There is a smell of decaying flesh which is not too different from the smell that a human body uh, emanates when it's deteriorating. And this was over a period of, what, three to four months. And, and I don't know if you know it, but that particular July uh, and uh, in, into August had been very hot. And uh, even though there was a degree of insulation down in the tunnel which preserved the body, it, it had deteriorated quite considerably and it was a uh, how would you describe it uh, slightly acidic certainly obnoxious uh, rotting flesh it is difficult to imagine the smell as i mentioned earlier ian gordon didn't take the photos of the tunnel until after the body was removed so at this point in time, when Alistair Smith and his team were busy retrieving the remains, Ian had no idea that the farmer he'd come to know had been found dead. In August 1968, uh, I was on a uh, holiday on our way home uh, on the Saturday night. We passed through Stenhaven, which I did at that time because there was no bypass. And uh, as I passed the police office at Stenhaven, I saw a lot of uh, police vehicles, um, which was surprising. Before I went uh, home to Dice, where I stayed at the time, I went into the office at Buxburn to ask what the activity was at uh, Stenhaven and was told that uh, Max Garvey's body had been recovered and that uh, I should port for duty at 8am the next day um, because I wasn't due to start until the Monday but to report at 8am the next day. Do you recall how you felt when you went home that night? And this man that you'd known of, who'd been missing for months, and finally he'd been found. We didn't have a lot of murders in those days. To um, find yourself in a position dealing with the murder of someone that you knew was different, yes. Um, and uh, clearly, knowing his background as well, the question was, why could this happen to uh, someone in his position? 
Well, the next day when I went to uh, a reporter on duty, then I was uh, involved in the, uh, at the post-mortem um, because the post-mortem was scheduled for the Sunday uh, morning. I went to the mortuary. My task was that after the body was removed from the shell, it was in a shell at the time, another officer and I had to take the shell down to the wash bed at uh, Aberdeen City headquarters, um, tip out what was in it and wash it out. Because um, Max's body was partly submerged in water and wrapped in a sheet and clearly there was a lot of water um, and in the, uh, in the shell. Was the purpose of the shell to retain items forensically or was it more a kind of hygienic thing of because of, uh, obviously if this is a a body that's been in water there's a lot of moisture was it more about was it containing it yes it's like a coffin i remember in my early police days when we didn't have these um and uh taking bodies in just on a, a stretcher if it was a body found uh, for example in the woods a missing person or whatever uh, then we would just put them onto this uh, stretcher um, cover the body up, put it in the back of the van and take it into uh, the mortuary. But then, um, after that, in some stations, and particularly at headquarters, there were these shells, uh, which we used. And the idea of the shell was obviously for transportation and also to um, preserve any evidence which may still be on the, on the body. Although the body had been protected forensically by the shell, Protective clothing for officers hadn't yet been introduced. The suit that I was wearing at the time, because at that time we didn't actually wear protective suits, um, forensic suits, uh, I, I just did on a, a lounge suit and uh, I uh, couldn't get the smell out from that because it was hung out to uh, get some air but and it was cleaned twice before it was serviceable again. Another challenge of the Times was recording the post-mortem photographically. My detective sergeant at the time, he did the photography and I assisted. Because in those days, we used sheet film and uh, five-by-four sheet film and it had to be replaced every time we took a picture. So we took pictures uh, at the request of the pathologist. So we were there for most of the day. Um, doing the, the photographic and you could be standing for some time doing nothing uh, until such times as the pathologist would ask for a photograph to be taken. The passage of time and the fact the body had been in contact with water made the post-mortem more challenging. An apparent gunshot wound was found in the back of Max's head but there was no exit wound. The forensic team went to great lengths to gather the best possible evidence. There was a, an initial examination of the, the external appearance of the head and neck uh, and, and the entry wound. But uh, as normally, uh, the, the, the post-mortem proceeded by uh, opening up from the throat down to the, the uh, the lower part of the body and then examining the top part and then eventually it was decided because of the probable 
uh, and as it turned out, it was most important that we get all of the information we could from the head. So the head was removed from the body. It was x-rayed and on the x-ray, which you could probably view still on the photographs taken at the time, the, the, the projectile, that was the 2-2 bullet, was quite clearly shown in the skull. The, the brain had deteriorated into a sort of soup uh, in, in the skull and the, the bullet lay at the the, the the bottom of the skull, if you know, at the bottom where the where the brain entered the spinal column. Once we had satisfied ourselves that the bullet was recoverable, then we had to decide what do we do with this because I was interested in the damage to the the bone structure of the head uh, relative to the damage that had been caused by the bullet moving across the brain uh, to the far side from the entry point and uh, this could only be done by uh, recovering the bullet uh, and all the liquid inside and uh, having a, a further detailed examination of the skull. I arranged for the skull to be taken to Aberdeen University uh, Pathology Department in, in uh, Marshall College, it was at the time, if I remember rightly, where they had experience of uh, recovering detail within a skull. And, and I think that they boiled it and got rid of all the flesh. And so it, it was, the next time I saw it, it was a beautifully white skull. And I could see clearly what had happened when the bullet entered the, the, the back of the and base of the skull really at the back and uh, the damage which had been done thereafter. While the post-mortem continued, Sheila Garvey and Brian Tevendale were appearing in Stonehaven Sheriff Court charged with murder and detectives were travelling to the west of Scotland to find a third person they believe was involved in killing Maxwell Garvey. In the next episode of The Storyteller, Violent Delights, the trial of the century begins with three accused in the dock. It was the biggest murder case ever in, in the north of Scotland, ever. Imagine the Aberdonians doing it in about six. And we hear from the police officer who had the front row seat beside Sheila Garvey. 16 steps coming up from below the court through this trapdoor, which led immediately into the dock, and it was all very tense. This is the storyteller, Violent Delights, written, produced, and edited by me, Isla Traquair. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss the next episode. And I'd really appreciate it if you could rate and review on iTunes so more people can hear this incredible story. The title music is Searchlight by Cathedral and all the other music is written and performed by Nick J. Tyler. <laughs>